0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on solving for the digital divide, building trust with mobile technologies to increase patient participation in clinical trials. It is from the 2022 Mobile Tech and Clinical Trials Conference, a sister event to the Farm Conference. For more information about these conferences, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com.
1: Thank you and enjoy the podcast.
2: Okay, so next up we have Adama Ibrahim, who will be coming up to the stage, and a uh, a panel to discuss uh, how we can try to build trust among uh, the populations that we're trying to serve. So I think I'm going to hand this to you. Oh, you're already mic'd up. I'm going to hand this to somebody else, and you'll introduce the panel, right? Oh, they'll introduce themselves. Good. Just go on up. You got it.
3: Hi, everyone. Come on right up. we missing Joe. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to this amazing panel. I'm super excited. I'll introduce myself real quick. I'm Adama Ibrahim from Novo Nordisk, and I am with an esteemed panel of experts here. But before we even get to who these guys are, you can see their names up on the screen. For our purposes, would like to know who you are. So a show of hands, real quick, if you come from organizations or areas that the panelists come from. So who here is from a sponsor organization? Hi, Joan. Hi Thanks for joining. Sponsor organization. <laughs> who here is from a patient advocacy or patient type of organization? Show of hands. Who here is from a hospital network or a site? I'll bucket them together. Who is from a tech provider? And this is a tricky one. Who is from a company that focuses on diversity and inclusion? All right. So thanks again. So this topic is important to us. You've heard earlier this morning around, you know, why it is important that as we innovate, as we bring in new technologies, we are able to offer them to as wide a population as possible. However, we're innovating a bit too quickly for the right reasons, and there is a tech divide as a result. So today we will discuss, you know, what that tech divide looks like, why it's important that we address it, how it can actually affect areas like trust and participation into trials. You know, as humans, first of all, we we all struggle with technologies. You know, I certainly do, you know, connecting different gadgets at home. And you can imagine you know, how patients feel when we start to introduce these novel different things that we really want to measure into trials. But it's not just the tech piece that's a, the issue here today. So we're going to unpack some of it because part of it is the fact that the trial development process itself is difficult and there are existing barriers. So we're lumping barriers and challenges on top of each other. And while we've heard that everyone has a mobile phone, you know, pretty much, you know, everyone has access to technology pretty much in their day-to-day lives, the, the, the kind of penetration and, and the usage of it is not the same. So, for example, Rock Health actually announced this one last year, that the adoption of new innovation, believe it or not, is highest in gay men and African-American women. It surprised me, certainly. I did not expect that because I thought, you know, that was maybe not the obvious population that would adopt new things. But if you think about it, it may be because that is the population that are typically looking for things online or, or have things that aren't addressed. So they have to find new ways of addressing them. With that introduction, I would really want to bring in the panel so you can start to hear a little bit about their thoughts and we'll start with the first question, which is really to, first of all, introduce yourselves in the, in, in the context of your organizations, but then also share with us, you know, what is it that you have seen from your perspective is uh, at the digital divide, how it impacts patients in terms of equitable access to technology, and what you've done about it. So we'll start from Tim, right next to
1: me. All right. I get to go first, thanks, thanks. Uh, hi, my name is Tim Joy. So uh, as is up on the screen, I work at uh, Pfizer. I'm the head of strategic solutions. And I've been with Pfizer for around 22, 23 years now. Time goes by really fast there. Um, so part about what my team is responsible for is looking to transform the way we run uh, clinical trials and kind of look at how we can introduce and, and um, apply innovative solutions to um, improve the way we run studies and improve the impacts on patients and investigator sites as well, too. So um, I happen to have a lot of thoughts on this topic here, so I'm happy to be part of this uh, quite distinguished uh, panel. Um, So I think the first thing I'll kind of start out with just a little bit is around um, there's a quote I heard a few years back, and it really has stuck with me a bit, is that If we're not actively including, then we're by default excluding, right? So if you think about that in the context of this component here, how we're trying to apply these uh, digital innovations, and oftentimes, we'll tend to, you know, at least from a sponsor standpoint, you know, look to um, operationalize them in a way where it becomes very much repeatable and then look to achieve and that may be by trying to reuse SIR in aspects in other areas. And what I think we, as an industry, need to come to an understanding is that, you know, um, this type of collection of patient data through this way, a one-size uh, solution just won't work, right? So, I mean, if we take that approach, if we think about years back when we first started to do EPRO, which has been around forever, right? And um, it has been one of the first areas where I think, you know, over time would be cut back maybe the amount of time that was spent on it or it would get introduced into a study towards the end and almost be an afterthought, right? And oftentimes it would even come late to a site. Um, So that's a perfect example there of where it is worthwhile and I think not just worthwhile but something we have to do um, with, within the industry has put much more effort into that in terms of um, having opportunities to create a customizable approach, one that's geared towards the specific patients and the specific therapeutic areas and type of study that we're hoping to collect their information out of. Um, you know, the other th- piece, and I'll let the others go because they have awesome things to say too, um, is that we collect now, this type of data is so important to us, right? So it gets applied to um, endpoints now. So years back, it was really just an add-on. It was a way to capture supplemental information a lot of times about a study. But the overall importance of this um, has increased a lot. And I think we need to pivot our approach in terms of looking to um, be absolutely inclusive and looking to, again, look at our approach so we can Um, look to help solve for this uh, divide we have, Um, and I think it is a very solvable um, issue that if we uh, kind of work uh, collectively towards, we can um, address a lot, so thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Maria Elena Cordisco. I'm an AVP for clinical trials at New Vance Health, which is a hospital network located in western Connecticut and across the Hudson Valley of New York State. So I come with the clinical examples of having patients not be able to use whatever digital device was given to them. And so my most recent uh, experience was a gentleman who spoke only Portuguese and the only option for the device was in Spanish. So you can imagine how difficult that was. He wasn't completely literate even in his native language of Portuguese, so now he has to try and read Spanish. So every time we were on the phone with him or tried to explain something, we had to do that through a translator phone. so it became very complicated because at our organization, in order to translate for someone, you have to be a certified translator and to ensure that they're able to uh, understand the information so now this gentleman who was in a ulcerative colitis trial had to go into this thing that looked like a telephone it was a, a he ha- he had a burner. He owned a burner iPhone, but this particular phone was uh, a, a different device. It was an Android device, so we had a problem with him understanding how to use that. And then every time he tried to go in, he would put in the wrong, you know, password, you know, four-digit code or six-digit code just to get into the device, which was. Um, you couldn't bypass that uh, from the sponsors, So we had all of these issues, and we probably issued him three or four different phones because he had locked himself out so many times. And so we started thinking, geez, is there a better way to do this? And the only thing that we could come up with as a site, because the sponsor at that time really wasn't able to offer much help, because when we called them, they would be like, oh, hold on. And so now we're holding on the phone, and this is like 5.30 on a, on a you know, Friday afternoon, and the guy didn't put in his ePro information because he couldn't get into the phone we had to have him come in and he gave him a new phone. And so their answer was, oh, well, hold on, let me get someone. And then that became someone who also didn't speak his language. So the, the problem was, you know, multifaceted. We had the language barrier. We had the fact that it wasn't a device that, was, that he was familiar with or comfortable with. It had the fact that he wasn't particularly literate in the language that he was in. And this became a problem throughout the study. So it wasn't just the device. We had issues with scheduling. We had issues with making sure he was arriving on time. And so I started to think, is there anything else we can do? And the best that we could really offer was to ensure that we always had someone who can translate. And and at our organization, like I said, we had to use a translator phone, which just added an additional layer. So um, my coordinators are reading the consent information to a translator who's translating it from English back into Portuguese for the port, for the gentleman and ultimately everything turned out okay because we were very patient and he was patient but at any time the frustration level was through the roof you know you're like oh my god here he comes again I can't believe he locked himself out yet again and we you know we told him just to set it to zero 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 but he just can't remember so it, be- it became a, a big a bit of an issue um, and when we do ask and I, as a site I do ask for consents um, and and materials in other languages but most of the time we're just Offered like Spanish. Um, But I asked for Spanish, Portuguese, and one of our sites, there's a large French Creole population. I have yet to find a sponsor who could actually put anything in French Creole. So then we have to have it done by IRB, which charges by the word, which adds cost onto the budget and everything else, as you can imagine. So that's kind of how how we started. So this conversation we had before this. I started the conversation with that, and then we were able to have a lot of great, great thoughts about this just because of that one example. So this is why I bring it to you today.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Tina Aswani Omprakash. I would like to thank um, Mobile Tech and Clinical Trials for having me here today. I am a patient advocate. I um, am a patient who lives with Crohn's disease as well as many digestive conditions and autoimmune diseases. Um, I am the founder of the blog OwnYourCrones.com and um, the president of the organization South Asian IBD Alliance. Um, I have been living with inflammatory bowel disease for the last nearly 17 years, and I have had over 22 surgeries. Um, I live with a permanent ostomy bag on my abdomen. Um, I'm sharing this all with you today so that we can work towards solving for the digital divide. Um, I have been in a clinical trial. um, As of seven years ago, I was put in a clinical trial in September of 2015. Um, I myself have been advising on multiple clinical trial protocols as well as mobile technologies around um, clinical trials and what suits patients and what doesn't. Um, as we heard in the prior session, the voice really matters of the patient, like the literal, uh, not the figurative, but the literal voice matters of the patient. Um, I have been working with Ash Rishi here, who will be introducing himself as well on DEI protocols. And a lot of my passion is around health equity and making sure that we ensure that we are having equitable access to some of these digital technologies that we're going to be talking about today. Um, a lot of my passion is around making sure that we are addressing some of this divide um, and making sure that patients have the access that they need, and that is something that I'm working on within my nonprofit as well as, as a patient advocate. So I'm excited to be here. I'm happy to share more about my thoughts. Um, With regards to language, I feel that language matters, I feel that voice matters, I feel that language translations matter, Um, and I want to make sure that we're bringing all that into the mobile space because, let's face it, mobile technologies can be a little bit impersonal. So we need to add that human touch because we are ultimately working with human beings with significant conditions. Thank you so much. And with that, I'll hand it over to you.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Ash, founder of Couch Health. We are a creative health engagement agency based out of Manchester, UK. Um, We have global aspirations, but the reason why I'm here to talk to you all is diversity and inclusion is very personal to me. I mean, as it is to quite a lot of people, but it's a personal experience that has led me down this path. Uh, My father had prostate cancer. He was diagnosed at a very young age. There was a lot of biases that impacted his diagnosis, his treatment. He was never given an opportunity to join a clinical trial. So really, I've, I've carried that my my whole career, uh, which has led me down here. And I firstly want to thank everyone here for, for finally waking up to understand that there is an issue uh, around diversity and inclusion, especially in healthcare. Um, so thank you that we're even having this discussion now. Um, but where I come at it from in terms of mobile technology is really around cultural relevancy. It is around language, which we've already touched upon. Um, But some sobering stats that I think will bring this to light. In the US, there's 25.2 million people who have very low proficiency in English. In Europe, 46% of adults have um, what is known as basic to very low basic um, health literacy. In the US, that's 37%. So we're developing these technologies. We are... I mean, how are we get developing these technologies? Are we getting the voice of the patient? I think we are. But are we actually getting the patient of the communities? Or are we still listening on what physicians say? Are we still... You know, I'm, I'm sceptical on how we're approaching our technologies because um, we're not where we need to be. You know, there's a lot of conversation around AI which I think has its place, but I question data. Are we already bringing biases into our work? So um, before I get lynched by everyone in this room, I just want to say that my my aim is to try and improve that situation, not call people out, but um, that's where I come at it from.
5: Hi, I'm Joan Severson. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Clinical Inc. Um, my background is human-computer interaction, so Um, I actually studied computer science and have um, been working in sensor technology and advanced technologies for about 22 years. I come from the perspective of just bringing basic human factors into this space, which is not what I'm seeing a lot of. So when you work with companies like the automakers or the people that are making your phones, they're doing human factors research to look at things like usability. They're looking at one of the things that we've learned is that in order to be able to provide mobile technology, we want to be able to use as much as possible the mobile technologies that people are already familiar with. So, to be able to address, you know, like usability, we want to be able to use the personal device that the patient may already have, since most of our, um, almost everybody now on the planet to a certain degree has a mobile device that has some level of connectivity. But we need to understand the types of devices these people have and what those sensors are. So, we recently did a study that I found really compelling uh, to learn that many people don't even have cellular plans, that there's a very large portion of the population in the United States that are using, you know, track phones or the phones that are sold at Walmart for like $75. So if you're designing for a $1,000 iPhone, are you designing for that person that can take the phone out of their pocket that needs to go down to uh, Starbucks in order to be able to upload their data? Those are some of the things that I'm not seeing that I'm familiar with in other industries. That, you know, I'm working with the big pharmaceutical companies and other digital groups to understand the digital divide, understanding the digital technology and what those sensors are like, and the differences between a microphone on a $75 phone versus your iPhone, and how can we develop digital biomarkers taking all of the differences in computing, um, internet connectivity and um, you know sensor technologies into that design space. Uh, the other piece that I'm particularly interested in is doing more of what we call natural history studies and being able to work with patient advocacy groups to do small pilot studies and understand disease burden and having them part of the design process. These are standard practices in other industries that will not take a tremendous amount of effort, but I really think that the industry um, for clinical trials will benefit tremendously learning about the processes that are used in development and introduction of new technologies in other industries. And then lastly, um, I do a lot of design for people that have uh, neurodegenerative diseases, and that, again, involves trying to understand what their limitations are in designing assessments or active tasks that they're able to perform and providing them with real accessibility to clinical trials. So um, I'm very, very excited about using mobile technology in clinical trials. I just really want to be a champion of trying to use some of the processes that we've seen uh, that have been very, very successful in other industries.
3: Thank you. This this is great, right? I told you these guys were good. So let's kind of dive a little bit under the, the skin into what is it, you know, give us an example of, you know, what are the patient concerns, you know, when it comes to this type of divide? Um, you do hear about, you know, data privacy, for example. Um, historically, there's a lack of trust, you know, with pharma overall. But when it comes to then data privacy, you know, we've heard of Henrietta Lacks. We've heard of lots and lots of historical issues with, uh, where pharma hasn't necessarily done the right thing. But even today, you know, you hear about tech companies not doing the right thing. You know, the company that starts with Cambridge and the artist formerly known as Facebook have all fallen into that, those traps. So the consumer world is, is definitely challenged to trust when you say we want to collect your data. Where do you think our position is and how can we address some of those data privacy issues?
2: I think being clear with the patients in real language, you know, because if you open your computer now, you probably have this gigantic disclaimer that probably no one's ever read, including myself. Or when you sign up for some app, it has a this disclosure, but no one ever reads it. So I, I really believe that people need to understand that there is that there is well, first of all, I have to also say there's probably always a risk, right? There's never you can never be absolutely positively sure that nothing's going to get breached. However, you can try and mitigate that risk as much as possible by allowing people to understand that these are this, these are what we doing these are what we're doing to prevent that from happening, and I think that allowing patients to understand having patients hear that is important, and perhaps hearing it in in a, in a conversation as opposed to just you know click the box that you can just say yeah this is all right, because I don't think people understand at all.
1: Yeah, I'll just add a few thoughts. Thanks. And I think, again, it was touched on a few times, but the first, first kind of step along that way is to help establish uh, trust as well, right? So imagine a scenario and you heard it spoken about a bunch with each of the folks here. If each of us up here were, were giving this talk in a different language. Would you all understand and would that still resonate with anybody in the exact same way? Could I be saying something that was completely off? Could I be talking bad about a person in the audience and you wouldn't know, right? So put yourself in that mindset of there's a patient there that exists. Most patients are not in a clinical trial because they're happy or feel well, right? So they're in this somewhat of a scary situation to start out with their first kind of interaction is looking to um, understand what's going to happen, understand the consent aspects. How is their data and information about them going to be used, right? So we've got to make sure that we're absolutely clear, upfront, speaking to them in the language and in the way that will resonate with them to help make sure they understand it. And again, not having those details about, you know, how their data will be used and what's going to happen to them in it and what's being collected about them, not having all of those details pushed down in a giant consent that they don't even get halfway through because they don't understand half the things that are in there, right? So I think that's that, that will go a long way.
0: I think um, to drill down into a lot of these points, and thank you both for your points, um, I think we have to drill down to this, like, Is the language also um, basic enough? Um, I remember uh, in the last year working on a vaccine document with the American Gastro Association, and I was like, we need to have this in fifth grade language. We need to make sure that people can understand what this is saying, because the scientific terms often don't resonate with the patients, but also people may not be able to understand them. Why is this vaccine necessary? Then on top of that, in in the mobile app that we were using, Um, I made sure that we added language as to why we're asking for certain information. So why are we asking for their race and ethnicity? Why are we asking for their sexual orientation? Um, And I think a lot of patients have mistrust, and they're like, why do they want that data? I don't want to disclose this. But I think uh, as a patient who was not asked in the clinical trial that I was in what my race and ethnicity is, that I'm of South Asian background, Um, was a huge problem for me from from a health equity sort of perspective. Um, I think that we have to explain, even if it's one or two sentences, in a language that they understand and at an education level that they'll understand it in, um, why this data is being asked, um, because we need to understand who is participating in this research and how sort of this data affects them so that we can develop better resources for them. And that's the kind of language that I was putting in throughout the document, wherever there were questions that I know I wouldn't have answered 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago because I didn't realize how important this was at the time. So I think it's very important to hone in on these details as well. Um, In addition to that, something that I worked on was, uh, and it's in the process of being released at this time, is um, a pamphlet with Sysgrip, an organization that advances clinical trials and clinical research. Um, here out of Boston, I believe. Um, And we work together as South Asian IBD Alliance to develop um, uh, brochures um, online for patients to understand why participating in clinical trials is important as well. So as sites, yes, it's important. As pharma companies, it is important, but also as patient advocacy organizations, it's very important to develop um, language um, to communities. And I want to make sure I emphasize this as well, Um, because there are a number of communities with different challenges and different forms of mistrust um, we can't just lump people into, uh, you know, uh, for instance, the Asian category. And this became a big issue in the work that we were doing in this pamphlet. They're like, we're having a very hard time sort of addressing the mistrust and the concerns. unlike like, because you've picked up the entire Asian and Arab communities, we have similarities, yes, but there are differences as well, and we're not categorizing the groups properly either. So. This was you know as a, a, a you know I want to make sure that I emphasize this as well is We cannot just group everybody into the same box and assume that one stigma or one form of mistrust applies to all different communities. And I think we need to make sure that when we have, you know, human outreach towards patients on clinical trials, on clinical research, that we make sure that we're addressing their concerns in a way that is culturally sensitive that they can also understand and relate to.
4: I just want to say, Tina, you nailed that. I I don't have anything else to add. (laughs) But I think um, for me, you know, when we talk about data privacy and the trust issue, you know, when we talk about it from certain communities, population, we talk about Tuskegee. Um, We talk about mustard gas experiments that happened on the Indian uh, population during World War I, Um, forced sterilization. I can keep going and on and on and on. But, you know, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, due to due to Netflix and the proliferation of their their media, it will be the the digital version of um, Tuskegee. Everyone is using that as a reason for why they don't trust uh, technology, social media. You know, I'm seeing people coming off social media. And as I think us as an industry, we have a responsibility to address that now. Let's not wait till 20 years down the line when, you know, everyone's using paper again or whatever it may be. Let's do it now, and let's get it right now. And that will come from listening, to to Fabio's point earlier on. It's going to be talking, and it's going to be engaging, and I think that's the only way we can do that.
5: I have nothing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the technology side, again, um, I think that there's a lot that we need to take into consideration in terms of literacy, being able to use multimedia in our consent process, Um, having a platform that allows people to pause if they're doing a e-consent and reach out to the site to actually get a person to help to answer some of their questions. Um, But I think that there's a lot that we can can certainly address when it comes to um, being able to get people to understand more clearly what the consent process is. The other piece of trust is knowing that we're designing platforms that are technically secure. And that's a piece that, you know, we need to develop standards that aren't just by vendor qualification review, but something that is standards in the industry for using mobile technology and how we actually handle that data both in transit and at rest in our different methods for uh, encryption and what types of data are considered um, identifiable data, like all voice is now considered identifiable data because some tricky computer scientist is going to be able to use your voice pattern to identify who you are. So these are some things that I think are more um, industry rather than vendor uh, qualification processes that I think uh, need to be addressed on the, the trust and security side of it.
3: So, so stay with you for a second, Joan. Yes, ma'am. We could go to the stratosphere when it comes to technology solutions that address trust. We could go to technologies like blockchain. I know Pharma Ledger and other groups have come up with, you know, new ways of using this kind of rubber stamp guarantee. But, but I kind of want to come down to maybe first principles fundamentally. Is it a hardware problem? You know, should we actually influence the phone companies, the manufacturers, the Apples, the Hawawis, the Samsungs, to say, could you produce hardware that is more fit for purpose, that addresses these challenges? I wonder what your thoughts are.
5: Um, well, hands down, Apple is a more secure platform just because it's something that they focus and they have on. And, um, you know, they have a combination of, of locking down the operating system and the hardware. So we have more challenges with Android. Um, But I'm not really sure if it's so much the manufacturers of the devices, but just making sure that all of the people that are providing these services have an understanding of what their expectations are and maybe even helping them to understand what the expectations are in terms of you know, the different types of authentication and encryption that are used, for example, in the banking industry and the standards that are required for being able to handle credit card information. This is just as valuable to people, and it's something that I haven't seen yet in terms of the industry, promoting that this is something that, rather than being at a vendor qualification level, that it's an industry qualification level.
3: And so, coming back to why should we care? I'm a you know, glass half full kind of person, what is it that we need to really think about? If we don't address this today, what, is, what are the impacts that we will face? And if you're a glass half empty kind of person, what are the costs of not caring? So maybe Tim, you wanna kick this off?
1: Yeah, sure, uh, and I'll kind of tie back to what Ash had said before too, right? Imagine the future time where we're going back to uh, paper, right? I mean, I think a lot of us in this room work through that hard piece there, so if we don't look to to address these issues, I mean, I don't think the extreme would be where we would completely go back to that, but it will stop and um, stop the opportunities that exist now um, and the opportunities to, you know, get better patient data, get it to, faster ultimately le- leading to uh, medicines being available uh, quicker. Um, I think I would, you know, in terms of, After seeing everybody in this room raise their hand, you know, and the amount that did that work with tech companies and everything, I would say we kind of need you all to help us, right? Um, Help us drive consistency across the industry, right? Don't be unique in the model. Help us with things like handling translations in a consistent way so every single study, even though we're collecting a lot of times the same data as the one before, we don't have to go out and look to get everything retranslated again, even though it's already been done for lots of others for the exact same things, right? I think that type of innovation would be, you know, and, and um, would be a very big help for us um, within industry. I think it would also help, again, there's a bunch of things that would help us drive um Increased adoption and help build the trust across the board. And then, again, back to my original comments there about thinking about, you know, there is not a complete total one-size-fits-all, right? So within the industry, within the sponsor industry, I highly recommend an approach we've been taking as of late is every single study that comes through now, we assess every visit, visit by visit to understand what's the uh, expected Demographics of the patients that are going to be in the study, where's the geographic location of the study, and what can we do to kind of help drive and make that experience better? Right? So, you know, it hasn't been the smoothest way to go through. It certainly feels like a lot more upfront and heavy costs and potential impacts on time when all of us are trying to go extremely fast. But when you're getting better data up front and you're retaining patients in your study because they feel connected to it, because they understand what's there on the back end, you make up way more time and save way more than than having that effort put up front. So, thanks.
2: Uh, What I was going to say is, as we're developing these technologies, to try and bring pa- patients from patient advocacy into it er- early on, as well as sites, because something may look like it's going to work from the perspective of the developer, but when it comes right down to the site it's it's it doesn't work, and that's happened many times where we've seen we have no way to like make the process work for the technology and I think that that's important is to try to have people on the committees or on in parts of the company that have other experiences like people who worked at sites or people who are site advocates or patients themselves um, that that's really important because we understand how it's going to work for most organizations. If you ask me how we're going to deploy the whatever device, I probably could tell you how. I mean, one of the things I, I, I do want to mention, we we turn down studies that have devices or complications that we know the patients can't manage and and we don't want to do that but if we know that that thing that they have to wear on their wrist is too big and has to be on there 23 and a half hours a day no one is going to say yes so we want to be successful so loop us in earlier loop the sites in loop the physicians in loop the patients in much earlier and that will end up being more successful in the long run
0: yeah thank you for saying that um marina um I would just add to that, I think I've been on a few different um, clinical trial protocols uh, involving wearables for digestive diseases. Um, We've gone through multiple sort of advisory components around okay, will the patient be comfortable with that device on their abdomen? Would they prefer um, on their arm, on their wrist? What would be most preferable? I think getting patient preference um, from trusted patient advocates and experts in the community is extremely important um, because that, you know, lends to the feasibility of, you know, a wearable technology. Also, you know, I just want to make sure that I point out, um, going back to sort of the trust topic, what data are we getting out of these wearables? The, the reality is patients want to know. Um, here's the piece of um, things that I think could really help patients understand better. It's, it's one thing you know, when we join with an informed consent um, that things are explained to us and things are explained to us in a language that we can understand. But um, if we want to continue to solve for that digital divide throughout the course of that trial, of that research, of that technology being used, On a patient, I think it's very important for there to be some sort of data return, even if it's just a little bit of information so that patients know how they're contributing or adding value um, uh, to a trial um, via this mobile technology that they're using. I think that is paramount. Um, in the case of involving patients, whether it's for, from an advisory component involving us early, but also um, making sure that that there is that communication, that human communication. What is the patient contributing? Uh, to this trial, to this research, that can really help to advance science. I think patients really like to know that if they're involved in something like this, what is sort of their um, contribution to that, um, uh, to that research. And I think I just wanted to make sure that I emphasize that, that that goes a really long way in all of this.
2: I think you're right. I just don't want to interrupt you, Ash, but I do want to say that the earlier you give it to the patients, the better, because if you're waiting to the end of the data collection and the data lock and then the publication and then you tell the patients, they're like, oh, did I do that? You know, it's years ago. So to try and give them as much information, even if you can only give them their information, like this is what your trend is, this is what you said, that would be very helpful.
0: Exactly, and uh, I'm just going to pass it on to Ash in a minute. For instance, I'm in um, a COVID vaccine uh, trial right now, um, and they give me information pretty much monthly. It's like a little bit of information that they're sharing with me over you know, mobile technology, but for me, that's enough to keep going and to keep coming back um, to, to retain me in that study.
4: No, thank you. Um, for me, when I think about the digital divide, uh, I'm going to look at it, Glass half empty, but I'm also going to look at it half full. But from a half empty perspective, <laughs> um, you know, if we continue the way we are, you know, we're seeing an increase in lawsuits being brought to against healthcare uh, tech, websites, whatever it be, f- around accessibility. So if we don't solve this, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And at the moment, it's increasing by 25% every year um, over the last six, seven years. So we'll see more from a positive perspective we are seeing people developing technology or companies in the right way they are listening, they are watching before they even come up with a solution So, and that's the way it should be done it's looking at the challenge and then taking that forward and the trust, the confidence will build Um, and also for me, just one last statement, I think it would be really good if when we are talking about whether it's uh, people of lower socioeconomic status or the older population it's, they have access to technology but that's not the issue it's the, the lack of confidence you know, if you think about the older population you know, dexterity, vision that's why accessibility is key um, and these are some of the steps that I think will, will close that gap
5: I think we should all commit to using digital technology and at least one clinical trial this year. (laughs) Um, I'm hearing more and more that people say that they're going to go back to paper, that DCTs um, are no longer needed because we're over the the pandemic. Um, I think it would be a huge disservice to all of humanity uh, because one of the challenges that we have in clinical trials and drug discovery is not being able to um, get our... Are studies done uh, quickly enough or be able to include the um, accurate populations. Mobile technology is the way that we're going to be able to um, provide that outreach. And so if it's something that internally you're not getting a lot of support for, it's something that you need to, if you're here, you should be thinking about how you can help to help your colleagues to understand why this technology is really important for accessibility.
3: Thank you very much. We have time for one or two questions before we wrap up from the audience.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Thank you very, very much. My name is Techtu Haring, I'm from Sanofi. And I really have a question to Maria-Lena. How do, what is happening to address the digital divide in our healthcare organizations in hospitals and hospital organizations that we can leverage and collaborate on as industry uh, trying to do t- clinical trials. I, I think involving our IT departments early would be really helpful. And as I was I, I'm I'm actually going between Craco and here so I'm I'm picking and choosing. But as I'm looking at all of the people that are in the in this the in the meetings, it there's so much in in the tech world that my tech department doesn't know about I have a million firewalls I can't get into Google it's insane but if if they understood the value and I think that that's really what it is is we need to connect the sites need to have a connection between the sponsors the sponsors tech and, and tech companies into our IT department so that they can leverage our EMR system more efficiently and they can do it for a a, a reasonable cost. So that, for me, would be really important is to be able to find out which sites are, are... what, what the barriers at the site level are. And they may vary over different organizations, but that tech department that I have is really important because I, there are some EGCs I can't get into without like having them open the firewall. So that's really important to have that, that conversation early on. As soon as, they, as soon as we get selected, hey, these are the systems we're going to use. Do you have someone on tech that we can could, we could talk to, someone in your IT department in IT security that we can make sure this is going to work for you?
3: Thanks, any other question? Okay, we'll go straight to wrap up. So in our last few minutes, um, I wanted to just ask the panel for one quick tip for solving the divide. I'll start with mine, which is literally look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself when you're building these solutions, is this something I would use? That's it. I think that would, that would be a good start.
1: That's exactly the answer I (laughs) had, but I will say put yourself in the patient's shoes and think about that. Forget everything you've known, pretend you don't know anything about it, and start from there.
2: And I would say start from there, but then think about the person that you know has the least amount of technology in their background, like your grandmother and see whether or not they would understand it, because the expectation to be part of a trial is that they would participate in that component of it. And so the, the lowest... I always say, like, the, you know, the, the herd only moves as fast as the smallest elephant, so let's make sure all those small elephants are able to understand the technology requirements.
0: Um, I would um, basically add to that and say, and we've been talking about this throughout, involve patients early... But what do I mean by that? Um, I think one of the best done um, panels around mobile technology that I was involved in uh, was a few years ago in New York, and there were six or seven of us patients. We had some patient advocates like myself, a couple of them. We had some lay patients that had never done anything like this before, and we had people of different age groups and different races and ethnicities. I think hearing from a variety of people who are from a variety of um, socioeconomic classes, age, ethnicities, is very important. And we basically had a roundtable about whether or not we liked this app, what we liked, what we didn't like. And it was sort of in this staged process. It wasn't done yet. But um, the number one concern that came up was privacy. Patients don't want their data being misused. But they involved us early to figure out how they could use this if it was too cumbersome for patients, and we did it together. I think having brainstorming sessions that are sort of an advisory circle um, allows for that information exchange to take place um, and also allows patients like myself to feel like, you know what, I can trust this.
4: Just conscious of time, my one thing um, is, my one tip is listen, engage, and implement. I think that's in test, optimize, validate. I'll keep going now. Um, But yeah, I think what we really need to do is just just think about the end user. One size does not fit all. I think I'm repeating what others have said. So um, yeah, that's me.
3: Ditto. Thank you. (laughs) And thanks to the panel.
2: Thank you so much. Excellent points here. And I love the fact of bringing in the user voice whenever we can.
0: For more information about these conferences, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com, and that's d-p-h-a-r-m-conference.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. With lucky landslots, you
5: can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the
2: limo, and we lost track of time.